The book of Proverbs was written for a world that must deal with ruin all around them. The book of Proverbs was written for a world that must deal with the realities of death and suffering. After Genesis 3 and outside of Eden, the forces of death are manifest all over the place under the sun. There's tragedy and sickness and folly. There's poverty. There's manipulation. There's murder and unfaithfulness. There's thievery and injustice. All manner of challenges and the forces of death expressed in many ways in the fallen world. One of the most disconcerting parts of our culture is how many people advocate for and celebrate death. A nationally relevant example, of course, is the subject of abortion. Roe v. Wade was overturned when the Supreme Court released their ruling on Friday, and we live now in a post-Roe v. Wade culture. It's a wild thing to say out loud. I think Jacob was right this morning when he noted a shell-shocked feeling that can still hang in the air. It is an incredible thing to say. As you're aware, the response to these things is outrage and fury in many parts of the land, which was expected and has come to pass We live in an era of death celebration because we live in a Genesis 3 world. When we see life after the fall and under the sun, we recognize the advocacy for and the exaltation of and the celebration of things that dishonor God. We ought not be surprised when sinners treat sin with all of their vile and malicious words and gestures, advocacy and images The forces of sin and death are at work in the world. And in a post-Roe v. Wade culture, we have to navigate how to be a people of light and love and life. And we do this because in a Genesis 3 world, we are surrounded by people who treasure the darkness, love the acts of death, who twist what it means to love. And so light and love and life in light of God's word is most paramount for us. Something that ought to be on the forefront of our minds, not something extraneous. It ought to be something we seek full on and deliberately and eagerly and not something we're indifferent to. We are called to be light, called to be a people of love and people who walk in the life of Christ. How are we going to do this? Well, Proverbs helps us. Proverbs helps us with this subject and many more because Proverbs directs us in wisdom. And that's what we need in a time and era of confusion, which is to say we live in a Genesis 3 world. If we were to ask our passage this morning, what stands out to me, verses 12 to 15? I think we could highlight two truths. We need godly hope and good sense. Godly hope is language lifted right from verse 12. The phrase good sense is lifted right from verse 15 in the ESV. That's not all the passage talks about. But framing our passage is this emphasis on what we long for, desires that we long to be fulfilled, hope that we long to see come to pass. So there's this orientation in light of the future. And then how we live in the present. Verse 15 talks about good sense, a phrase synonymous, I think, with walking wisely. 
walking prudently, walking with insight into the world. To live in a Genesis 3 world, Proverbs holds forth for us what we ought to long for and present wisdom that we navigate in light of such hope. God help us then to have godly hope and good sense as God's word would present it. Only in embracing such things and embodying such things will we come to realize by experience what it looks like to live as light and love and life in the world. We need a hope for what's to come. And we need wisdom to walk the present age. There is some interconnected language that we can notice in our passage. Verse 12 mentions a tree of life. Verse 14 mentions a fountain of life. Tree of life. Fountain of life, these things life-giving when received. Verse 13 talks about the word and commandment. And verse 14 talks about the teaching or instruction of the wise. Which, of course, such instruction would use words and commandments. Verse 13 refers to destruction. In verse 14, the snares of death. In verse 15, the ruin of the treacherous. In these four verses, we not only see an orientation toward the future and wisdom for the present, there's language that talks about the two paths. Fountain of life, snares of death. Once again, the book of Proverbs pulls no punches here, puts right before us the fork in the road that we should pursue what is life-giving, wisdom, fear of the Lord, Good sense, as the phrase in verse 14 gives it, or verse 15 gives it. And this morning, I want to look together at the opening orientation toward the future. In verse 12, the writer says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Well, one way to get a sense of this verse is to say it talks about when hopes are deferred or when they're fulfilled. Different responses inwardly. When our hope is deferred or fulfilled. To defer something doesn't necessarily mean to cancel it. Okay? It could could simply mean it's not forever deferred, but deferred for the time being, put forward into the future. It means that we have desires that we would like to see fulfilled. Longings and hopes we would want to see realized. But there are things that we hope and long for that are simply not yet fulfilled. This proverb gets at the idea biblically that all of us have desires and longings and hopes. This is a very um, common human experience here to have a hope that when deferred frustrates you, makes you feel sick inside. You don't rejoice over the deferring of your hope. You're like, really? Really? Oh, no, not again. Or I really thought this would come to pass. And so this sick feeling is a way of saying the response is not one of, oh, that's so great. I long for that. I relieved it didn't come to pass. No, that's not, that's not quite the way hope works. When a hope is deferred, there is a response inwardly that is part of the human condition. Someone waits and longs for something. We all know what this is like. And you can think about it on many different levels. Maybe you're looking forward to a particular vacation at some point in 2022 that had to be deferred. Maybe you were looking forward to some raise or promotion that had to be deferred. Maybe you had some kind of program or some sort of process with your children or family and something had to be deferred. You can pick the area of life. We all know what it means to have a hope for something and then it didn't come to pass when you thought. 
And you can recognize that inward reaction, how your heart and your psyche respond. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I don't think this is necessarily about an ungodly hope. Because for a hope to simply be deferred and then fulfilled being the tree of life, we're probably to view this as more morally um, commendable hopes. The things that you ought to desire and hope for. In other words, if you desire what is dishonorable, it would be good if that's unfulfilled. That's the point. This seems to speak about things that are good to long for and good to desire. And yet we all know what it is like when it doesn't happen when we thought it would and how we thought it would. It's deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. On the other hand, just swinging the pendulum the other way, what happens when that hope comes to pass? When that desire is fulfilled? Well, it is as if you have eaten from the tree of life. And it's given in a shorthand here. The desire fulfilled is a tree of life. In other words, the experience of feasting upon the tree of life, that satisfactory, delighting, reviving depiction of the tree of life for, for uh, image bearers, almost said sinners in the garden, but not yet in the garden. And image bearers in the garden, when that tree of life was a gift in the midst of the garden, it was to hold forth the nourishing, feasting, renewing, strengthening hope of life. Well, we're not in Eden. Yet outside Eden, something is depicted as being life-giving that has a garden callback to it. And those desires, in light of the providence and plan of God, and in light of what would be honoring to God and good for one's soul, when those things come to pass in the providence of God, there is a satisfying, renewing, and reviving experience that we have. We are not unmoved by the circumstances of our lives. They affect us. Well, how could they not? We're not stoic. We're not made of stone. When we long and desire things that are unfulfilled, that affects us. And we're challenged at those points to ask, how are we trusting the Lord? Are we seeking His will and wisdom? Are we asking for our own selfish gain like James chapter 4 says? You, you, ha- you ask and have not because you ask with wrong motives. We have opportunities to pause when desires are unfulfilled to once again commit our will to the Lord. Thy will be done. Trusting the Lord's providence and sovereignty as our paths unfold in this life. A hope deferred means to be postponed. And it can feel like quite a drawn out thing indeed. But then there's the relief, the experience at the end of the verse. A desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You as an individual might hope for something. We as a church could have desires and longings to have fulfilled. A whole nation might be hoping and longing for something. My mind even thinks about the Old Testament. Starting in Genesis 3.15, there's a hope for a Messiah, but a hope deferred indeed. In other words, in Genesis 3, when the hope for a deliverer is announced, it's not fulfilled in Genesis 4. Instead, you have century after century unfolding, and then the desire and hope is indeed fulfilled and comes to pass. Where Christ comes, and the ministry of the Messiah is told in the four Gospels. This gives us opportunity in verse 12 to consider what are the things I am hoping for in this life right now at this stage in life? What have I faced as a recent disappointment? Let me put my finger on 
what desires or hopes were unfulfilled. How am I doing spiritually in light of that? Am I going to seek to trust the Lord? Or am I going to withdraw and pull away? Were there particular desires that were just fulfilled and hopes fulfilled in a manner and timing that I didn't think? That I didn't think about or I didn't want? Are there experiences in your life right now that are like the end of verse 12? Where things that you have longed and planned for, that if it were up to your calendar, might have even been much earlier. But you can trust and see in hindsight the goodness and wisdom of God. And there is a renewing, satisfying thing about God's will coming to pass in your life. A hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I think though our hearts can be sick and frustrated... Though our hearts can be confused and bewildered, our trust in God is in response to what God has made known in His Word. About His character. About His trustworthiness and faithfulness. But this means you ought to care about the Word. This means that His commands and His wisdom and His ways made known in Scripture ought to be meaningful to you. It affects how we respond to the circumstances of our lives, unfulfilled hopes and desires and all the rest. Which means the relevance of verse 13 is strong. You might have a different response to the word and commands of God besides embrace and joy and trust. What if it's this? Whoever despises the word. You see, this word here is not just a word about general things in life as a father in Proverbs is instructing his son. The word word, and at the end of verse 13, the word commandment, and then in verse 14, the teaching of the wise, teaching and word and commandment. These are Old Testament words rooted in the Torah. In the first five books of the Old Testament, especially Deuteronomy, it's language about God's ways and will made known in his commandments so that they're communicated, taught and trusted, held to as promises and obeyed in submission and reverence. That's not necessarily the response that someone might have to the word. We know that one way people can respond to what God has made known is contempt. They can hold His Word in contempt. It doesn't shape them. It doesn't influence them. It doesn't guide them. They reject it. They view God's Word as something to be held away. Something to be mocked. Something to be scorned. The language is so strong in verse 13. Whoever despises the Word. That's not an indifferent posture, is it? To despise something is something from the inside that's like a gut level reaction to it where you're revolted by it. You're not drawn to it. And I wonder if the word of God allures you or repels you. Whether you are entranced and captivated by the promises and glories of God made known in his word. Or whether the word of God is as nothing. And it might as well be discarded. And your attitude might as well be you despise it. The Proverbs want you to consider where this is going. The book of Proverbs is brilliant in this way. It tells you what's down the path with that attitude. So you might not be able to see this yet. But Proverbs says, I can see further down the road than you. That attitude toward the word of God. Where does that lead? Here's where it leads. 
Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself. Why would that be the case? If the word of God makes known what is just, what is righteous, what is holy unto God, what is honorable, what it's like to live wisely in God's world, then to reject the word of God is to be upon a path of folly and rebellion, and that reaps destruction. Proverbs is quite honestly laying out before you that this is the path, or this is the end point, this is what is coming in the line of those on the path of despising the word. Destruction there can mean things both in a present sense and in an ultimate sense. Think about the grief that folly brings on the lives of those who reject the wisdom of God and live as gods of their own lives with their own authority guiding all of their desires, decisions, and behaviors. The folly and ruin that they constantly heap upon themselves. Even the spiritual side of things in an ultimate sense can be in view. Think about the eternal condemnation and judgment on the day when God holds forth the wicked to the reckoning promised in the word of God. Destruction, judgment, whoever despises the word of God brings destruction on himself. But if we, have people, if we are people with desires and we are people with hopes and we are people who live in the present and have an eye toward the future, what ought our view to be toward the commands of God? The opposite of the beginning of verse 13. The end of the verse says, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Reveres the commandment. That's a strong word as well. Despising, revering. Those are the two. You must choose. Despising or revering. To revere is to hold highly in honor. It is to esteem greatly. It is to be in awe of. And we might think of the language of reverence belonging to God. You know, revere God. We live in reverence to God, honor to God. But you see, God has spoken. And it's one thing for someone to say, oh, you know, I worship God or I honor God. When they live in total despisement and disregard to his word. In fact, a a particular litmus test would be not what is it that you think in vague generalities about you toward God. What do you think toward God's word, what God has said? Has what God has said, has what he has revealed shaped and impacted you? Do you care? Do you seek to submit to the God you claim to believe in and follow and worship? What think you of his word? Believers care about what God has said. Because they love God, and so the God who speaks in His Word is not irrelevant to them. That's life-giving to them. So they love His commandment, His teaching, His instruction, His words. Because this is the God who has made them. This is the God who has saved them. This is the God worthy of all worship and honor. And He has spoken. And therefore, we are not adopting a neutral position toward that as Christians. We care deeply about and highly esteem the Word of God. We gather on the Sunday mornings, and one of the things that we do in our corporate services, as you know, is we think about and proclaim and reflect on what God has said. We seek to corporately revere the Word of God and to hold in high honor what God has said. To honor the Scripture is appropriate 
Because the words of the Bible are the words of God. So we hold it in high esteem. And the earlier we can commit to such high esteem and honor of the word, the better. In an address to young people, J.C. Ryle said a profound thing and an encouragement and an exhortation that I would love all the young minds in the room to especially hear this morning. I would love to have had this charge when I was the age that J.C. Ryle is addressing. He says to young people, I charge you to make a habit of reading the Bible and not to let the habit be broken. Don't let the laughter of your friends, don't let the bad customs of the family you live in, don't let any of these things prevent you doing it. Determine that not only will you have a Bible, you will make time to read it and allow no man to persuade you that it's only a book for Sunday school children. It is the book from which King David got wisdom and understanding. It's the book young Timothy knew from his childhood. Never be ashamed of reading it. Ryle is absolutely correct. And the longer we claim to follow Christ and the more from the Word of God we learn, may that resonate within us all, any age and at any stage in life that we are in. And the sooner the better. That we would love the Bible in the reading of it, in the hearing it, in the internalizing it, in the preaching of it, in the memorizing of it. That the Word of God would be held in high honor because it is God's Word. When we think about the Word of God being proclaimed... And taught, in verse 14, the writer addresses the notion of this teaching or instruction from the Word as a fountain of life. What a picture. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Now the wise here, this is not someone in the culture of his day or ours that's simply savvy and clever about how to do things in life. They're, they're street smarts. I've, I've mentioned this a few times in Proverbs because it's worth reminding wisdom is linked to someone who fears and knows God. That's what the wise are in this book. So the wise who know God are wise because they esteem His Word. They believe what God has said and it directs them. They want the Word of God to influence the way they think about the world. The way they think about all the subjects of the world. Their relationships in their lives. Their question is what saith the Lord? They want to know what the Word of God says. And that's a question we have to ask ourselves. All the different subjects and areas of our life. What does God say? Are you interested in dating this particular person? What saith the Lord? Are you interested in going in this particular vocation or this line of work? What saith the Lord? These particular friendships or this particular habit and hobby? What saith the Lord? Thinking always, what is it in my life, in these various realms, that I can do in honoring God? Not living in the flesh and not seeking my own will above all, but seeking goodness and wisdom from the Word of God. The teaching of the wise. To be in a position where we are thinking on the Word of God, it is a fountain of life to us. We come on Sunday mornings to drink. We come that the fountain of life in God's Word would refresh and renew. And God is faithful to do this week in and week out. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. And so when we get before the word of God and we're being instructed in the word of God, 
The Word of God, not an individual, the Word of God, the teaching of the Word is a fountain of life to us. A fountain of life was something to celebrate in the ancient world. You didn't want to be in a village where you didn't have access to living water. You didn't want to be in some city where you had to walk all sorts of distances in order for your pails and buckets to be filled up with running water. If you were where you were and could discover that there was living, a fountain of living water, that fountain of life changed everything for the region. People in the ancient world would build entire civilizations near rivers and bodies of water because they needed, let's call it a fountain of life. They needed a source of nourishment and revival to their lives and souls. And to be cut off from that would mean their death. A fountain of life. Well, friends, for our souls, this is not optional. We shrivel and corrode. We are spiritually destroyed without it. We need the teaching of the Word of God. We need the words of God in the hearts of His people. And that kind of teaching, the instruction from the Word of God, is a fountain of life to us. The opposite picture is given with this, with this image, snares of death. So in verse 14, the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Snares of death sounds like a scary thing, and it's meant to be. It's meant to be a stark image to say, well, I don't want any part of that. Proverbs is honest about the deceptiveness of sin, the insidiousness, malicious nature of sin's promises, the ruin and destruction that lies in the path of those who are heading down the path of folly and rebellion. In verse 14, we want the fountain of life because that will turn our feet. We are foolish apart from the word of God. We don't know what is most honorable to God and what is best for our souls and lives apart from what God has made known. Left to our own subjective judgments and desires, being sinners in a fallen world, we will not do well with this. We need the fountain of life to instruct and guide and to turn our feet. This must mean that part of the teaching of the wise is not only about who God is, but about the outrageousness and horror of sin so that when the snares of death are understood to be what they are, you don't want to go down that path anymore. Not one more step. I want to turn away from the snares of death. So we need the fountain of life so that our feet will turn. We need the fountain of life and the teaching of the Word of God so that we will see clearly through the blinders of sinning in a fallen world. Fountain of life imagery is used in Proverbs on more than just this occasion. Chapter 14, 27 says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. So if the teaching of the wise is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death, that's not something completely separate from the fear of the Lord. Fearing God and receiving the teaching of the words of God are important for our feet to turn. To turn from the snares of death and to worship and follow Christ. Jesus himself is the most excellent of teachers. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. Well, let's just think about how Jesus fulfills that. Jesus says in John chapter 6, when people begin to disperse after he said some hard teachings, 
Do you as well want to go? And Peter says, Lord, to whom else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, listen, friends, if you believe you're following someone who has the words of life, then you don't leave them for anything. You don't turn your feet from anything. That's the fountain of life there. Jesus himself spoke about his own vocation as life-giving. In John chapter 4, he says to the Samaritan woman, If you only knew who asked you for a drink, you would respond with a question for a drink as well. And he'd give you living water. So the question comes down to, do you know who he is? Because Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, if you saw fully the one with whom you are speaking, your question would be for the living water I alone give. And in John 6.35, he says, I'm the bread of life. Of life. In John 8.12, he's the light of the world. He says that whoever follows would have the light of life. In John 3.16, whoever believes in the Son would not perish, but have eternal life. They will not Perish in the snares of death. They will have turned. The gospel does this intervening, merciful, rescuing work. They are not plunged with soul and body in the snares of death. They are delivered from it. They are delivered from it because Christ, who is the ultimate one greater than Solomon, the wise teacher of all, His words are life. When Jesus taught... He was opening a fountain in front of everybody. When Jesus said, you gather around and you listen to me teach. And here's what we're going to think about. And let me answer your questions. And with the authority he pronounced, what he pronounced on. Jesus was opening a fountain before them if they could see it. It was a rock gushing forth with living water in the wilderness. And it's Jesus. The same is true today. When we gather together to think about the word of God, when you sit on an early morning or late evening or on a lunch hour and you're opening in your Bible and you're praying for the help of God and you're trying to struggle through a verse and you're trying to memorize something to keep in your mind when you're going through the day, when you're thinking about the word of God with your coworkers or your children, if you're sharing with your neighbor, the word of God for us and for others is life-giving. The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life. That one may turn away from the snares of death. You know what this produces? When we take in this, when we have our hopes shaped and directed and desires guided by what God's word has said. When we think about like in verse 13, a posture of holding in high honor and esteem the word of God. We grow wise. That is the effect. We begin to see how to live prudently, thoughtfully in the world God has made. And the promise in verse 15 is that good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. Again, putting before us the two paths, the two ways. Good sense wins favor. This verse is about the results of wisdom or treachery. The results of wisdom... Or treachery. And good sense wins favor. This is not salvation by works. This is not talking about divine favor where we grow wise in order that God might save us. The favor that is being spoken about here is favor among neighbor. Favor among our fellow man. Good sense wins favor. And I think it involves the following ideas. One writer defined it this way. 
It's the capacity to have sound judgment and wise opinions on matters. To have good sense. And when you have good sense, and you're operating with good sense in the various realms of your life, that affects things as well and affects other people. One of the things that it will do, one writer used the illustration of a magnet, is draw certain other things to you. For example, living with good sense will affect your friendships in a positive way. Living with good sense will mean you work in a particular way and live with integrity in a particular way. When it says good sense wins favor, you receive the blessing and, and, um, and commendation of others who are blessed by someone in their midst living with wisdom and integrity. Good sense wins favor. But the way of the treacherous? Well, the way there, the word way is a metaphor in Proverbs for one's life. So the way or the life of the treacherous is ruined. Why is that? Because the treacherous don't keep their word to neighbor. Treachery involves betrayal and deceit. Manipulation and pulling the wool over someone's eyes because your, your object is not to love them. It's using them for some other game that you have. So here in verse 15, the way of the treacherous is their own ruin. You see, you, the wicked are deceived in the following way, at least one of the main ways. One of the ways the wicked are deceived is that they would think, what I'm going to do might affect others poorly, but I will get this particular gain. The insight of Proverbs 15 is that the wicked become their own undoing. The way of the treacherous is their ruin. And so if you want to reject the commandment rather than revere it, if you want to ignore the instruction of God's word and elevate yourself as authority in your life, you will not love God or neighbor well. You're on a path of destruction and ruin. In fact, one way to translate the end of verse 15 is that the way of the treacherous is unending or perennial, something that's ongoing. In other words, the ruinous path seems to go on and on. Haven't you met people that in their treachery and in their betrayal over and over again, their feet don't seem to move from the path? And you think, why won't they move their feet? Don't they realize the ruinous consequences coming upon them? And because their feet aren't moved from the path and they're taking further steps, it's a perennial and unending thing, this ruin that they're bringing. And I think that ruin and destruction is the same idea that verse 13 talks about whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself and not just in many ways in a temporal sense, but also in an eternal sense. Good sense belongs to the wise, the righteous, those who fear the Lord, the way of the treacherous. That's the way of the fool, the one who is the rebel, who has rejected God and does not revere, but rather despises the word of God. Friends, when we look at these four verses together. The book of Proverbs doesn't want us to think to ourselves, well, it just seems quite murky to me. I'm not sure what would be best. No, the book of Proverbs is using its images and its stark language so we will be horrified of the idea of rebellion against our maker and drawn and allured by his good wise commands and his blessed hand. We will be drawn to that and love that and live under it. When we think of Christ... Who in all of his authoritative teaching and he himself is a fountain of life for his people. We think of what it means in light of, we think of what Proverbs means in light of his person and work. He is the one instructing us as the son of David, shepherding us into righteousness. 
He is the one calling you to exercise good sense and wisdom, namely, fear the Lord and love your neighbor. He's calling you to live with integrity and faithfulness. He's calling you to turn your feet from a path of destruction and ruin and revere and highly regard the word of God. And that means not just have certain positive thoughts, but to live in submission to God's word. Don't you see the life and joy and peace that the Bible promises in light of that versus the other path? The Bible sees further down the road than you do. Don't you see? You can't see as far as the Bible does. And so we need the words of God to lay before us with plain, clear truth. Choose life and not death. Which means follow Christ. Trust Christ. Speaking of the tree of life in our final book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says to the one who conquers... I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. In the Old Testament, outside Genesis, only the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament uses tree of life imagery. Until you get to the New. And in the New Testament, it's found in Revelation. Recapturing again, what is the path of the wise? To feast on the life of God. To know and commune with the God who has made them, who is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. Who loves them and who has loved his people to life and to light. And in union with them, a new covenant that will never be broken. Friend, don't you see your heart drawn toward and behold the glory of wisdom in the path of life? Flee from ruin, flee from destruction, flee from godlessness. Pursue life and light, which means know God in his word and submit your life to it. To live as Christ is gain. Let's pray together.